0: As promised, we are beginning a new series. I think it's technically called New Look at the Old Book, but I want to call it Fresh Look at the Old Book. I've decided. Uh, and we're going to talk to, the idea behind this series is we're going to look at all the things, all the, the stories and the accounts in the Old Testament that may be kind of famous. Maybe you've heard, whether you're a church person or not, you've probably heard of these things. The question is, um, what do they mean? And I'm hoping that uh, if you're not a, a religious person, you don't identify that way, then, then these will be a fresh look. You're like, wow, that's not what I expected from from the Bible. Uh and if you're in old hands and you're uh, you're you're the best Christian ever and you're a pro at Christianity, I, I hope that again you'll you'll see things maybe in a fresh way, a new way, a way that will engage, um engage you that you might not have expected. And so you can see uh we're gonna be talking about the first sin. This is uh from the Sistine Chapel, uh Michelangelo's um Portrait, painting of, of Adam and Eve at the, uh, at the tree. And so that's what we're gonna look at today. While we're doing it, well, let's set, let's set, uh, in the back of our minds, just, I want this to be kinda whispering in our ears, uh, sort of like the snake is whispering to Eve, well maybe. But not, no, not like that at all. This is a good thing, good question. The question is, what's wrong with people? What is the problem with people? We all know there is one, uh, because well, we know ourselves, and we also uh, can watch the news or read the news on the internet. We know that there is something really messed up with people. And what's cool about this text is I think that this text uh, kind of sets the stage and answers the question, what is wrong with humanity? It kind of kind of puts it all out there. Like, this is what's up. This is the problem. So if you let that sit in the back of your head as we, as we encounter it, I hope that um, we'll see something new and something exciting. Um, this is the New King James, so you can follow along in your pew Bibles if you like. But uh, we're going to start in Genesis 2, we're going to skip down to Genesis 3, and we're going to get the, um, the the story of the first sin. So please uh, read with me. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God, commit, by the way, anytime you see Lord in all caps, that's, um, that's uh, underneath is the personal name of God, Yahweh. Uh, and it's a way that the, they've kind of glossed over that. But that's that's so you could even read and the and, and Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, "Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die." So God tells that to Adam. We're going to drop down to uh, to chapter three. So we're skipping a little bit. And a a scene is set. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which which Yahweh God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, has God indeed said, has He really said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of, of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you're not gonna die. You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Some translations will say, uh, will say like the gods um, because in Hebrew, uh, the word for God, Elohim, is plural. So it's, it's sometimes thought that maybe uh, you'll be like the gods. I don't think that's right since every time the Bible talks about God, it's just God. But just be aware of that. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then Yahweh God called to Adam and said, where are you? So Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Mm -hmm. And Yahweh God said to the woman, "What, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I love this text uh, for so many reasons. Uh, not the least of which is right at the end. There, it's like it's like, "Did you eat, Adam?" He's like, "It's her fault." <laughs> I, um, I I often say this to my wife when she's I do. Uh, she'll tell you it's true. She'll she'll be doing things and and like I'll do something wrong and I'll be like, "It's your fault." Really, if we think about this, me doing what I did wrong is ultimately your responsibility. Because if you hadn't done X, Y, or Z, then I wouldn't be in this situation. It's your fault. Works great. Uh, every time I try this tactic, I find that um, we grow closer together. <laughs> because you know she she gets it. She she knows I'm right, and so she's like, "You're you're so right, honey." <laughs> Slash S for the sarcasm tab- tag. All right. Uh, let's just take a look at this text, and as we as we journey through it, I think we're going to see uh, some really cool things. So, the first thing you notice—do you notice that, uh, that that in chapter two, uh, the, the, and I've mentioned this before—the the job of human beings is to tend and keep the garden. Uh, in fact, it's not just the tend and keep the garden. God gives a command to go out and 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 subdue or cultivate. All of the world, right? But there's like a home base. There's a starting point. The the Garden of Eden is sort of like um you know like humanity's first first garden. It's like little baby's first uh, first oven, where it's not too dangerous. It's pretty easy to take care of. Um, but so you kind of practice. This is like your your practice pad, where it's really easy for you for the most part. And you're getting ready. You're getting ready to go out and and, and do this thing with the whole world. You're going to make the whole world a garden. You're going to find all these places that are that are wrecked and and dangerous. I mean you know that the world once we find it once you go out into the world it's pretty it's pretty gnarly out there they got a new show on uh like amc or discovery it's called alone have you heard of this show i haven't seen it yet my brother-in-law he loves it it's um he uh apparently like they, they send people out into the middle of the wilderness and they see how long they can go before they have to signal for help and so they're like in mongolia and like one person made it for like 83 days they survive off the land, you know, killing animals and eating moss and all that stuff. I mean, for 83 days. That's because the world's a dangerous place. It's unruly. It's wild. Well, God knows that. He wants human beings to, to take their part in, in, in shaping and cultivating and making the world a good place. But they need a starter kit. And the starter kit is Eden. So God says, every tree of the garden, you can have it. Except for one. Knowledge of good and evil. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What's weird about that is that if we read the story, we know that's not true. They do eat of it, and they don't die. So there's something weird going on. God's doing something weird. Let's keep going. Let's keep going in the text. Let's keep going. Now the serpent, more cunning. Not sure what's going on here. Probably, we learn in the New Testament and later on, um, elsewhere in the scriptures, that the, somehow the enemy, the devil, is sort of working through the serpent here, kind of like making the... the him operate. I'm not sure how that works exactly, but for whatever reason, the serpent's there whispering, and there's Eve, and, and and Adam's actually there too. We'll see in a little bit. But has God really said, "You shall not eat of every tree of the garden"? Eve's like, no, 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 no. That's not what he said. No, that's not what he said. He said, he said, we can eat of the fruit, but but the one in the midst, the middle of the garden, middle of the garden. It's important that you get that there. Uh, If you imagine the Garden of Eden is like, you know, junior garden tending time, right smack dab in the middle is this one tree. It's like, oh. Nor shall you touch it, she says. Not only eat it, but don't even touch it. Is that what God said? I have a a couple of images here to help you get a a picture of what's what's going on, all right? The first is um, Norman Rockwell's 1948 uh, painting, The Gossips notice what's happening here like you know she said to her and she said to her and he said to them and and by the end we find out that someone is someone's learning something brand new that wasn't there at the beginning we call this uh, the game of telephone we play it with children Uh, we're like you know you start with a message the the ball was as big as an elephant and you come out with i hate my friends you're like wow how did that happen uh, because people are talking. Well, notice, did you notice that uh, when God says, gives the command, right, uh, don't eat of the tree, he's only talking to Adam. Eve's not even there yet. And so presumably at some point between chapter 2 and chapter 3, Adam has informed Eve. The man has informed the woman, this is what God said. Now maybe the man miscommunicated. Maybe he was, this again, if you're, if, you're, if you're married, you know how this works. Someone tells a man something. Like, someone's like, oh, Tom, we're going to a birthday party on Sunday. And I'm like, make sure you tell Aaron. like, okay. So when I see Aaron, she's like, did anything happen today? And I'm like, nope, everything's fine. (laughs) So you can see that there's a problem with communication going from men to women. So maybe Adam miscommunicated. Maybe he went over the top. She was like, ooh, I want that one. He's like, nope, can't even touch it. Or maybe uh he says, Don't eat of it, and she and she like she looks at it and she's like, better than I just don't even get close. The point is that there's been a miscommunication or something. So the human beings have they've 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 made this bigger deal than it is. And the top right there, you see um, you know, this really kind of captures what it must have been like. They're they're walking around the garden and there's all these, and then there's that one tree right smack dab in the middle. It's beautiful. Uh, probably I have an old Testament professor friend who says that um, the tree was wasn 't apples it was apricots like that was what was the i don 't know where i don 't know how he thinks that he knows that, but apparently that was like a tree that would grow there i don 't know someone can inform me of that what, whatever it is there 's these big fat apricots or whatever and they and they 're sitting there and, and notice now now we 're at a place where not only can we not eat them we can 't even touch them i mean it 's like if you want to mess with a kid you 're like Okay, whatever you do, do not press that button. <laughs> that big, shiny, red, candy-like button. Don't touch it. I mean, if you want to get a kid to like, but then notice this: in the bottom right there. Uh, this is a gardener picking her papayas. Notice what Adam and Eve are supposed to do, right? They're supposed to tend the garden. So presumably they're walking around and they're like cutting trees and they're learning how to, you know, cultivate crops and whatnot. And so one of the things that they do is they go to this tree, these big fat apricots, and they're like snip, snip, and they're like, oh, but don't touch it. And like the, the morning dew is like glistening on the side of the apricot, and they're like, ah. Oh. For all intents and purposes, and this is the first thing in your note sheets, uh, the forbidden tree really looks a lot like a test for human beings, um, a test. I'm not saying it is a test, uh, because we're never told that, and maybe from God's perspective there's nothing test-like about it, but certainly from our perspective, human beings, notice this, notice this about us, this is something about human beings I think is true before human beings ever made any mistakes, human beings want good things for ourselves, right? We see something that's good and we want it, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing, right? Like, if we didn't want good things for ourselves, then we would presumably die. We'd we'd, we'd be a mess. So it's built into us to see things that are good and to want them. And because that's the case, when Adam and Eve are set in this situation, it is very likely that they're like, I want that. And that's okay. It's not wrong. Let's go back to the text. So the serpent's there, somehow activated by the enemy, saying, "Oh, honey, you're you're not gonna die. Don't worry about that." One question: Do they even understand what death is, Adam and Eve? I mean, I don't even know. Um, Maybe they maybe they have no concept of death. But what whatever it is, the, the 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 serpent's like, "That's not gonna happen." Here's what's really going on. God knows that when you eat of this thing, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like Him. Knowing good and evil. At the end, remember what, what Eve says? She says, the serpent deceived me. The serpent lied to me, tricked me. Which part of this is a lie? Do they die? No. Are their eyes opened? Yes, it literally, literally repeats. Their eyes are opened. And do they suddenly know good and evil? Yeah. They do. The serpent's just basically a news reporter. The serpent's like CNN, being like, hey, guess what? Uh, FYI, here's the facts about this. Um, You can trust me. I know what's up. And Eve's listening to it, and she's looking at the red candy-like button. And she's like, huh. Huh. What does that mean? What does it mean, uh, to say that your eyes will be opened and you'll know, um, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil? Well, the first thing you might say is you might say, well, well, being like God, that's bad, right? You shouldn't want to be like God, right? That seems like that's, uh, too prideful or bad for people to want to be like God. Well, I would agree with that, except that in the New Testament, it tells us that our destiny as human beings is to be like God. Um, can we, do we have Romans up here? Yeah, look at this. This is Paul talking about human destiny, he says, for those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The whole point of God's creation of humanity and his movement through humanity is to get us to be like him. That's the goal. In fact, Paul says, that's the destiny of every person here. You will be like God. That's a good thing. Why would we not want to have the mind of the one who created everything? Why would we not have the, the, the character and, 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 and everything about... Why would we not want that? Well, that's a good thing. That's a beautiful thing. That is our destiny. It's something we should desire. What about the knowledge of good and evil? Do you, uh, do you anthropomorphize your, your pets? That means, do you treat your pets like little people? You treat them like, like human beings? Do we have the picture of the, yes. I like this picture because she's like, she's, she's in the middle of a, sort of a, a disquisition. She's lecturing. She's like, so, what's the dog's name? Fluffy? So, Fluffy, I want you to understand that you're not allowed to, um, to roll over and over and over in, in the grass. You can roll over twice, but then when I call your name, I want you to come to me. And the dog's like, oh. Huh? My dog's three and a half pounds. My dog uh, does not speak English. My dog knows three, well, three sounds. One is the name Piper. The second is come. And the third is this. That's what I do when she's done something naughty and she has to like stop and put her ears back. There's a lot of theories as to why uh, my dog hates my children. Um... <laughs> There are a number of theories. The first is that she's deathly afraid of them. My children are small monsters. This is how the theory goes. Cause remember, when they were like babies, she would literally like snuggle them while they were in the, in the like car seat. She would like lay on top of them and keep them warm. And she'll even, while they're asleep now, she'll even sleep next to them. So I don't think that she hates them. Um, or really hates them. But she's, but she certainly doesn't want to be touched by them. If they come anywhere near her while they're awake, she starts to growl. And if they begin like hitting her on the head, she'll like snap at them. So the theory, not, not to hurt them, just to like be like, hey. So the theory is, is that, uh, because they, uh, are, don't have control over their, um, their limbs and appendages like adults, she's afraid of them and that's why she growls at them. My preferred theory is that, uh, Piper sees herself as part of a pack, right? I'm the alpha dog. (laughs) So I run the show. Uh right right below me um, is Aaron, who's sort of the matriarch of the clan. And then right below Aaron is Piper. Piper fits the firstborn, as it were, uh the older sister. And so when the younger children are around, Piper expects them to obey her. She's the one in charge. And when they stop when they when they get out of line, as it were, uh Piper starts to get angry and then and then responds. I think we can all agree. That all of that is a bunch of nonsense. Nobody knows what's going on inside a dog's head. Why is that? Why is it that no one knows what's going on? They can't speak. They have no language. The idea that a dog knows the difference between right and wrong is silly. All they have is instinct. And we put these concepts on our animals to explain why they behave the way that they do. So it's comfortable for us. We don't really know. And here's the proof. Here's the proof that we don't really know. Let's say uh, my buddy Colin in high school had a mastiff named Sophie. And uh, my buddy Brad once was dangling cheese. In fr- this is like a 230-pound dog. The dangling, he's like, Sophie, you want to eat? You want to eat it? And then took the, the, the cheese away. And Sophie like psh, clamps onto Brad's face and then goes like that and just and releases him. He's blood all over the floor. Four, uh, Brad has four scars to this day uh, right here. So what did we do to Sophie? Sophie's not with us anymore. Yeah, Sophie went down, and so as you do with all um, dogs, we uh, we called the cops, cuffed her, uh, took her down to the courthouse. Um, she uh, she she was able to afford her own lawyer, so we didn't have to supply one uh, from the district. So Johnny Cochran was on the case. And uh, and so we went before the judge And the judge was like, your honor Or the lawyer was like, your honor, Sophie is not guilty of this Sophie was 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 trapped into it By this, this evil, evil human No That would assume that Sophie has some kind of Sense of right and wrong, some sort of response Sophie's just an organic robot And when cheese is in front Of her face, get out of the way She's gotta eat The knowledge of good and evil is that sense, that moral sense of what's right, what's wrong, what's appropriate, what's not, what's fitting, what's not. And Adam and Eve don't have this. They, they have a little bit of Sophie in them, a little bit of Piper. They're, in this way, they're more, they're a little bit like the animals. They haven't reached whole, full human maturity yet. They're not there. But that's not a bad thing. It's not that they shouldn't want those things, right? In fact, if we, if Paul's right, in order for us to to get to where we, at some point or another, they need to know this. This is something the forbidden tree, the fruit of the tree, and this is your note sheets, is something that human beings need if we're going to fulfill God's purposes. The, the the fruit of the tree, the apricot, it is something we absolutely must have if we're going to be who God wants us to be. God doesn't want us to be um, moral animals or children or whatever. God wants us to at some point be able to you know, understand who he is and submit to him willingly and to love him. And in order to do that, we're going to have to know the difference between good and evil, or there's no choice at all. Hmm. Let's, look, uh, let's look back at the text. So there's Eve. She sees that the tree is good for food. The glistening apricot. It's pleasant to the eyes. It's desirable to make you wise. I mean, literally, this is this is how we're going to understand in the way that God understands. So she takes it and eats. She gives it to her husband with her. So very important. Uh, notice Michelangelo at the beginning. Michelangelo's uh, picture. It's not like Adam's off somewhere. We're not sure what he's doing, but he's there. So he's there with her while this is all going on. Maybe he's like, maybe he wants to eat too, and so he's hoping that she'll like, you know, make a good argument for why they should. It's hard to know, but it's not as though Adam is like, you know, some poor sot who, uh, who's just a victim here. That's that's how the uh, some of the more uh, sexist rabbis read this, but that's not true. He's there. And then the eyes of both of them are opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they immediately sew fig coverings, and, and then they hide. From the presence of Yahweh God Among the trees of the garden My kids um, They think it's hilarious To uh, take all their clothes off And run around the house They think that's so funny And then uh, Olivia Her favorite thing to do Is to like drop, drop trow And then to walk over and go like this She's like That's my naked baby booty and Airbear unfailingly pinches that thing. She's like, "Oh, I just want to eat your butt." That's weird, but that's what happens. You've seen behind the veil. It's a real thing. It's true. Um, ki- uh, children and and dogs also uh, animals. They don't understand that nakedness is wrong or weird. Uh, they don't have a sense of of what's good and evil, what's appropriate, what's proper. Interestingly, human beings don't wear clothes because we uh, need. Insulation from the climate. Even um, even ancient peoples and tribal uh, places and tropical uh, areas had some coverings because especially once you become aware of sex and sexuality, uh, the genitals, private parts, become something that we're like, hey, we don't want, this isn't something we're just flashing to everyone. And then they hide uh, from Yahweh because now they can see the difference. And you might be because they, they're afraid that they, because they've disobeyed him. Maybe. I think uh, really what's going on here is that once you understand the difference between good and evil, God suddenly becomes a threat to you. God's scary because you know for the first time that he's awesome and you're not. You recognize very quickly, like, you're this puny little nothing and he's the creator of the universe. And before, it was normal to hang out with him and talk and just have fun. But now, once we're aware of who we are versus who God is, oh my gosh. So what did they do wrong? What's wrong? What's the problem here? What's really at the core? Is it is it just disobedience? Is that the issue? God made a command and they stepped over the line, or is there something else going on? What is really wrong with people? I have um, one of the major debates that goes on uh, in the world visualized here. On the right side, you have uh, the proper way to raise a child: wrap them in bubble wrap. Get in your helicopter and follow them around wherever they go. And if any danger comes in, land the the helicopter and save the child. Be protective. The reason that uh, we have people in this country who are very overprotective of their kids is precisely because we're aware of the the kid on on the other side. We're aware that there are children out there who experience uh, way too much way too early. Um, We know that there are child soldiers in uh, many parts of the world who uh, are forcibly um, made to be addicted to to drugs and given AK-47s and then sent to loot and savage um, other people. And and they're very young, they're 12 years old. We know um, that there are people, kids who have no parents and they're uh, they're groomed by gangs at a very young age to to go and, and have a sort of surrogate family. We know even uh, here that we have kids who are um, they experience violence in the household, uh, maybe th- to uh, sp- uh, to spouses, or perhaps um, they are themselves abused uh, by an adult, and as a result, they have uh, no time to be children. They're they're not children at all. They're they're uh, they're grown up by the time that they're eight, nine years old. And then sort of maybe overreaction to that, there's this feeling of like, oh, let's we've got to shelter our kids and protect them and make sure nothing bad happens. Make sure they're exposed to nothing that's in the real world. And so we, we shelter and shelter. But there's a problem there, too, because then at some point they come out and they look and they see the world. They're not ready to handle it because they've been so sheltered. And on the other hand, we've got kids who have unlimited access to uh, the internet and YouTube, and they're exposed to things way before they ought to be, to the point that they're desensitized to the realities of the world, and uh, the horror of the world, before, well before they should be. We, as parents, uh, we try, and, and this goes for single folks, and, and those of you whose kids are out of the house too, if you're a part of this community, you're helping uh, to raise kids. It's just how it is. It's your job. Just deal with it. Um, we're, we're in a place where we're trying to find that middle, that balance, right? Of like, you want to make sure your child, you want to make sure the children are safe, but we also don't want them to be so having no access to the real world that when it hits them, they're obliterated. We, we don't, we don't want our kids to be exposed too much. We don't want them to be exposed too little. We're trying to find, we're in this, this, this zone of, of trying to navigate what it looks like to give a childhood I suggest to you that the reason the forbidden tree is forbidden is because God's giving humanity, or trying to give humanity, a childhood. He's, he's, he's got Adam and Eve in like the, the starter garden, and he's showing them what life is going to be like and how they ought to operate. He, he, he's protected them from something that they're not ready for yet. They, they have to work on getting this down before they're ready for dealing with the moral quandaries that we're all faced with on a regular basis. The problem for Adam and Eve is not that they uh, beca- attain the knowledge of good and evil. The problem is they attain the knowledge of good and evil too soon. They're impatient. It's so, the uh, next thing on your note sheets, I think. Adam and Eve's mistakes was to choose to be Godlets. On their terms and not God's terms. The idea, Godlit—I mean, it's a made-up word—but it really does describe what Adam and Eve try to do. They understand, they they recognize that in order to be like God, they have to have this thing, and they choose it. They want it. I want to be like God. I'm going to be a little God running around the world. But if they could have just waited, if they could have just trusted that God was going to let that happen at the right time, then maybe things would have been different. The problem is that they stepped out and said, I want it now. God, you don't know the right timing for me. God, you don't know what it's like to be me. And I need to be like you, and I'm going to do it now because I can see better than you can how I ought to operate. And I want to suggest to you that uh, that is uh, the root of all evil that human beings experience and create. That at the core of us is a desire to be God, to be like God, and that's not even that bad. That's a good thing. But we're unwilling to let God decide when it's going to happen. Let's um, go back. I think I have one more thing to look at. Maybe I don't, yeah. <laughs> I suggest to you that also that we're um, at a point in human history where we have, in our culture, almost sacralized, almost made holy the very thing that has doomed humans to the misery that we experience. It's a quote from Richard Ebeling. He's the uh, founder of the... Forum for Economic Education. He's a prominent libertarian. And he says this. I want you to notice he says, of course. Like, obviously. Ebeling's writing to all the people who are, you know, economists and they're educated and they're brilliant. All the people who have the right ideas. Everyone agrees with this. This is so obvious. It's barely worth saying, but we might as well get it out of the way. He says this. The most fundamental right of self-determination is the individual's right to live his life as he chooses. So long as you don't hurt anybody else. This, of course, um, is, is, is a far deviation, I think, from what uh, <laughs> the people who started this country were trying to communicate with the uh, Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. But whatever the case, that's kind of what's accepted now. If you if you roll in any circle that's kind of elite, educated, knows what's going on, it's assumed, it's blindly assumed that the, mo- the most sacred, important thing is that every human being gets to live exactly the way they want, so long as no one else gets hurt. Notice... We've uh, had the hashtag Me Too movement. It's been very hot uh, recently. Notice that no one's sitting out there being like, illicit sex is bad. No one says that. Instead, what's wrong pro- uh, with Harvey Weinstein or you know Bill Clinton or whomever is getting the finger pointed at them nowadays is not that they've done something illicit. It's that they've hurt somebody. Right? Uh, you, you abused your power and you took advantage, and that's the problem. It's not that you were just, you know, going out and rocking it. That's great. Way to go. So long as you get consent, right? And the notion is, is that if we just, if we just live as we ought, as we feel, then we're going to be happy. I think now, more than any other time, uh, at least that I'm aware of, we have uh, come to a point where we've taken the original sin, the sin of the garden, of of making ourselves gods, and we've turned it into like our holy scripture. And you wonder why everything is going to hell. Okay. Let's say that's true. Let's say that the issue is uh, really that um, the problem in Eden, uh, the problem with human beings, the problem with people, is that we want to be God on our terms. If that's the case, if that's the case, then what we need to do is we need to reset our lives. So we need a radical reset from the culture's way of thinking, from our normal patterns of thinking, to, to come into a place where we can be different than that. Where we can be different, where instead of saying, I'm going to choose everything, instead we're going to say, I'm going to let God be God. I'm going to let God be God. Well, if you're a, uh, if you're a person, um, if you're not you know, super religious, uh, then you know, I think the very first thing, I have uh, some, some ideas here for uh, how to let God be God. Um... I think the, the first one is probably uh, really specifically for people who aren't necessarily uh, religious or don't identify as Christian or at least are very new at it. And that is learn your boundaries. You see, you notice Richard Ebeling, his, his notion, and the notion of all the people who know what's going on in, in America, their notion is there are no boundaries so long as you don't hurt anyone. That's stupid and naive because anytime human beings start trying to live by that principle, they end up hurting others and themselves. But whatever. Uh, instead, instead, instead of going with that cultural lie, the very first thing that you can do to let God be God is to learn the boundaries that God has given people. Um, and, and there's lots of them And we, as, as as at Coast here, we, we find them in scripture. Uh, but what's what you'll find very quickly, especially if you're someone who's new to faith or you're not sure about it, you're going to come up against these boundaries and you'll be like, I don't like this. I know better than this. I know that I should be free to do this. I suggest to you, no, you don't. You just don't know that you don't. And and what you have to do, what I'm asking you to do, if you're relatively new to faith, um, and, and you're trying to, to let God be God, is, is trust that those boundaries are there for a good reason. It's an act of faith. Because you think that you should be able to do X, Y, and Z. Instead, God says, here's the way that we ought to live. And and for you to just start by saying, okay, God, I'm going to trust you on that and see how things go. Sort of like an experiment. Like, if you're here and you're not a person of faith, well, you're here because probably doing the way things that you want to do hasn't worked out great. Okay, awesome. So now that you're here, I would like you to try a different thing. Let God be God, learn his boundaries, and just live in them on faith for a while and see what happens. See if things sort a little bit. Uh, the next thing, um, and this is probably uh, for those who've, who've been around for a while, ask for guidance. One of the things that we do, when we're, we want to be God, and we want to do God on our terms, what that means is we want to take, take control, take the reins of life, and we want to be the ones who determine what's what. This is really hard for me. I'm sitting around, and I'm like, I know how to make the church great. Listen to me. Right now, my thing that I've been on for a while is I'm like, we've got to get rid of this carpet. I would say one of the number one things holding Coast Bible Church back—the carpet—and all oh, Glenn's gonna get mad. The pews. I want cushy chairs. Oh, Nate's with me. All right, great. There's you know weeping and gnashing of teeth. No, the pews. I've made like two people cry by talking about that. Awesome. Uh, but that's me. In my in my wisdom, I'm like this would be good for us, right? And 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 if if I'm gonna operate on the on on Tom's terms and be like everyone get out of the way, Tom is gonna wreck everything. We're gonna just do this. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I can't do that because we have an elder board. So I'm I'm, uh, I'm unable to. Which may be a good for a good... And, and for the reason that instead of living our lives saying, I'm going to direct everything, we ask for guidance uh, for those around us from the Lord in prayer and Holy Spirit, from the scriptures to say, God, I want you to be in charge of what's going on here. Not me in my wisdom, me in my will. Number three, if you do that... Then you've gotta give credit. This is what sucks about it. I'm just telling you. So like, normally, like, if you're like a normal person, you know, a non-Christian, you know, sort of, you go and you're like, I'm gonna do X. And then if X is successful, you get to be like, dude, who's awesome, right? This guy. Who's got two thumbs and knows what's up? This guy. Right? But, if before you did that, you were asking for advice, you were submitting to the lord, you were seeking in the scripture, then if something goes well, you do not get to be like, "I'm awesome." Also, for the record, let's just say, you know, you're not necessarily a, you're not sure about all this. Um, who, you know, let's say you go do stuff, right, and you're successful. Who gave you the brains to succeed in a post-industrial economy? Did you do that? Or were you kind of born with some skills that maybe not everyone has? You know, if you're able to, you know, run a, run really fast and, and, and win awards, I mean, who, what, is it cause you trained really hard? I'm pretty sure a lot of people train real hard and they're not LeBron, okay? So I just, before you think you're awesome, you're not. Okay, very last one. <laughs> Look before you leap. So I'm like, alright. This carpet's terrible, need a new paint job, get rid of the pews, oh yeah, let's do it. You're maybe a person who's like, I see injustice and it makes me angry and I want to fix it. You're a person who recognizes what's wrong with the world. You're going to go in there, you're going to change things. You're going to make it right. Look before you leap. I think it's the law of unintended consequences. Whatever change you make, you'll have one consequence you expect, and for every one of those, there'll be two that you didn't. There's a reason that people put fences up, and when you tear them down, you find out why the fences were there. If you're the sort of person who's used to getting your way and attacking and moving and making changes and fixing things, and I just want you to stop for a second. Let God be God, because he sees what's going to happen when you jump way better than you do. You have no idea what you're opening when you open that box. You have no idea what you're doing when you jump into that thing. Look out. Brothers and sisters, um, thank you for being here. It's not always fun to talk about sin. It's not always fun to talk about um, things that we do wrong that make us messed up. I just want to remind you that... um, You know, God didn't give up on Adam and Eve once they decided to become God. He didn't say, oh, you screwed up, you're done. He inaugurated a new plan, a new way of doing life. He inaugurated a new opportunity for redemption, for hope. A way that Paul says will eventually lead to every person here who believes becoming like him. So if you're the kind of person who's been looking, leaping without looking and you've been owning it and you're God and then there are no other gods before you, take heart because the true God is just waiting to redeem you and to change you. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we, uh, we thank you for the fact that you're God, that you have Um, it all set up in your own time, in your own ways. I pray uh, for radical humility, Lord, that we would not be the people who try to steal that from you, take that from you, but instead would allow you to work in your time. That you would shape us and change us to be like you in your ways and your time and not in our ways and our time. Give us the grace and the courage and the faith to let you be you.